We're going to turn to God's Word. We're carrying on in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, um, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, and we're up to chapter 8. If you were here last week, um, we were dealing with some really um, relevant issues about marriage, about singleness, about divorce. And then we come to chapter 8, and it's entitled, Concerning Food Sacrificed to Idols. Not quite on the same page as last week. But anyway, we'll give it a go. Let's read this passage together. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, to whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they think they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Won't they be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what you eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Let's pray. Loving God, would you help us to apply your word to our lives today? We're so conscious sometimes when we read the scriptures that the situations that were faced 2,000 years ago are not our situations. But Lord, we pray that you'll help us to apply this to, to what is going on in our life, in our world at the moment. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I took Nathaniel to watch a Manchester City game. A while ago, Nathaniel converted from being a follower of United to being a follower of Manchester City. Here's some cheers. Round of applause. So we went to the Etihad Stadium. And we ended up sitting in some seats that I only later out found were in probably what are the most colourful parts of the stadium. I don't mean colour as in colour, colour. Some people are nodding. Interesting choice of language colour. The type of area of the stadium where the songs that were started to be sung at the beginning were were fine. They were all about Manchester City. But when the ref made a few bad decisions and when the other team started to take the lead, these songs turned from being polite and cheerful for, first of all, being quite rude to then being offensive to then being racist. Thankfully, it all went above Nathaniel's head. He hadn't got a clue what was going on. 
Now, I don't think of myself as particularly naive. You know, I grew up in quite a diverse part of Stockport. I've worked in all kinds of different situations. There wasn't any language that I hadn't heard before, and I'm not going to tell you what that language was. But I have to say that it took me off guard. It took me off guard. I was in a place hearing stuff that I hadn't heard for a while. And at the end of this football match, I was texting Claire saying, I need to come home. I feel I need cleansing from what I've been hearing. I feel I need purging from it. And so, in that experience, a question started to arise in my mind. And it's a question that is as old as the church. If this morning we are committed to a life of discipleship, if we're committed to a life of following Jesus, if we want to grow in the fruits of the Spirit, what is our relationship to be with the world round about us? Paul will keep asking this question as Corinthians goes on. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23 he says this, I have the right to do anything. This is what the Corinthians said to him, you say. But then Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. The Corinthians then say to them, I have the right to do anything. Then Paul replies, but not everything is constructive. And it's always this balance between freedom in Christ and then making sure that we don't pollute ourselves with the stuff of the world. Jesus, in John chapter 17, will pray um, for his disciples, and he says this. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you have taken them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And then it goes on, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And Jesus' prayer is for protection for us as we live in the world. We have to live here, we have no choice, but we're not part of it. So what do we do? Do we join in with everything? Do we separate ourselves and become a ghetto of Christians? Or do we just get seats in a different part of the stadium? What's the answer? So we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I have to say, it's not the most popular of Mother's Day passages. <laughs> but I will try and anchor that in a bit later on. But if you were here last week, we, we saw how in 1 Corinthians, we come to a pivotal moment in the letter. Up to chapter 7, Paul is responding to things he's heard about the church in Corinth. All the church's dirty washing has been aired, if you like, and Paul has spoken about it. But then you get to chapter 7 and Paul starts addressing things that the church has written to him about. And if we had an apostle to write to, to ask questions of, we might have started where Corinth did. You know, somebody who could speak authoritatively the word of God into our situation. We might say, well, talk to us about relationships. Talk to us about these things, about marriage and divorce. In our contemporary setting, we might want to issues of, you know, homosexuality and gay marriage we might be wanting answers to. But I'm guessing our second question wouldn't be, what do we do about food sacrifice to idols? It's not our question, is it? It's not our world. But there are things here that can apply to us, I think, in a really significant way. But the church in Corinth, again, was divided on this issue. They were divided on who they were following. If you can remember back to the first few chapters, were they following Paul or Cephas or Apollos or Jesus? They were divided on sexual conduct. They were divided on relationships. And now they're divided 
on what to do with meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. So what on earth is this about? What is going on? Here we have the centre of Corinth as it looks today. Corinth was a big city in the first century. Probably 300,000 people lived there. Still quite big by modern standards. It's bigger than Warrington. And just like Warrington, bathes in the Mediterranean sun year-round. But in the middle of this city were temples, and loads of them, in a stretch of about 150 yards down the main street that you can sort of see um, behind those buildings there. There were all kinds of temples. There's a temple to Zeus, the king of the gods. There was a temple to Zeus of the underworld. I didn't know there were two separate people till this week. There was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. To Bacchus, he was very popular because he was the god of wine. There was um, a temple to the emperor, who felt that people should start worshipping him as a god. There were temples to various Gnostic emanations. And in the middle of all this, it was crowded. It was busy. It was full of people. The center of Corinth, all these temples, more or less served like the Trafford Center would for us. You know, the place where people go to eat, they go to shop, they go to do all kinds of different things. But they didn't have the Trafford Center. They had these Greek temples. Weddings took place there. Parties took place there. People just went there to be. And it was in these places, in these temples, that sacrifices of animals were offered to the various gods. When the sacrifice had been offered, some was offered to the god and burnt upon an altar. Some was given to feed the priests and the temple prostitutes. And then the rest of it was taken down the, down the road to the market. And that actual building you can see there is the market where it was sold off. And so this is what all this is about. Now just imagine for a minute, or perhaps you don't want to imagine, the smell, the noise, the flies buzzing around the meat where there's no refrigerators. We were in Athens a few years ago and just stood on the waterfront and there was a fish market and all this fish was sat out in the heat of the day on bits of ice. There'd have been no ice though here. This would have been really smelly. And this was what the centre of Corinth was like bustling with people. And if there'd been a big party or a festival going on, the amount of meat that was being sacrificed to the gods would have increased. What happened? The price of meat collapsed because they had to sell it off quickly, otherwise it went off. And if you were an average income earner in Corinth or a lower income earner in Corinth and you wanted to eat meat, this was like your little of the first century. This was the place you went. You went to the market where the meat that had been sacrificed to the gods in the temples was available cheaply. But it was actually really serious. Because if you were fairly poor, this was a matter of survival. This was probably the only food you could afford. And this is where the questions start to arise. Should we eat this meat? If it's been offered to a god, should we eat it? And this isn't unique to the church in Corinth. This is going on right across the Mediterranean. If you remember, um, when we were looking at the book of Acts, I think it's about a year ago, even longer ago now. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council had said to the church in Jerusalem, don't touch meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Stay away from it. That was Jerusalem. There was other meat available there. It was a Jewish city. This is Corinth, hundreds of miles away, with a situation on the ground that is different. And so the people say, let's ask Paul. This is causing division. Let's ask him what he thinks. The core question really is, if we eat meat that has been offered to an idol, 
Are we worshipping the idol by doing it? Are we worshipping the idol by doing it? Let's apply the same kind of reasoning to perhaps situations we might face. If by being surrounded by a crowd of people singing offensive songs, am I joining in by simply being there? If we go to parties where people are drinking too much, taking drugs or sleeping around, are we joining in by simply being there? If we go to places where people are gambling, are we joining in by simply being there? If we go to shops where people are spending tons of money on things they can't afford and putting their families into debt, by spending our money there, are we complicit in what is going on? You see, it's a problem that actually relates quite a lot to today's situation. The list could go on and on and on. So to what extent do the Corinthians separate themselves from this? To what extent do they think, well, it doesn't matter where I go, it doesn't matter what I eat or drink, it's what the heart's doing that matters. And to what extent do they have to think, well, actually, am I loving Jesus in each and every situation? And so the church is divided, two groups. Now, I don't think that these are two groups that opposite one another in church, you know, sort of abusing one another verbally. It's not probably like that. It's probably more intricate than that in the life of the church. But for ease this morning, we'll call them the knowledge group and the conscience group, okay? Two groups of people, the knowledge group. Quite like this quote, not because it's true. Just read that. Those people who think they know everything are a great annoyance to those of us who do. (laughs) It just shows the danger when we start to claim that we know lots of things about all kinds of different things and how ridiculous those kind of claims can be. Look what Paul says, verse 1. We all possess knowledge. But verse 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. People were claiming knowledge on this issue. But Paul is actually saying, well, knowledge isn't enough on this if you're not doing the right thing with what you know. You can know whatever you want. But if you're not loving people, if that knowledge is causing you to be proud, then what's the point in it? You see, Jesus never said, know God, What did he say? Love God. Now, yes, we get to know about God. We get to know as we study the scriptures. But the greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Knowing is good, but loving is best. Look at Paul's answer to this knowledge group. Verse 4, he says, yes, you're correct. Idols don't exist. There is one God. God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is with us by the Holy Spirit. And if you look at those, those words, we haven't got time to sidetrack this morning, but just the way that Paul talks about Jesus as being equal with the Father in those verses. There's a whole sermon in there as well, but we'll, we'll um, keep going for the moment. And so he says, you know, an idol isn't real. If somebody goes and offers meat to Zeus makes no difference whether they go to the temple of Zeus and offer it to this idol who's called Zeus or whether they offer, an, offer it to a plant pot or a garden shed. It doesn't make any difference what they offer it to because it isn't real. So it doesn't make any difference. So for Paul, the knowledge base is quite straightforward. These idols aren't real. Verse 8, food does not bring us nearer to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. 
The idol doesn't exist. Food can't make us holy or unholy. We can't get nearer to God through a special holy diet. We may make ourselves healthier through a special diet, but we will not make ourselves closer to God. And you know the same is true for so many things today, isn't it? You have not brought yourself closer to God by being in a church building this morning. We do not make ourselves either nearer to God or further away from God by going to the Trafford Centre, by going to watch a football match, by going to a concert, by spending a week on a silent retreat in a Christian retreat centre, by going to the pub, by eating certain foods or drinks, or by, by being near particular people. But you know what we can do is put ourselves at enormous risk by being in situations where past temptations can start to rear their heads again. Where things that used to pull us away from God or have the ability to pull us away from God can start to rear their heads. Perhaps one of the toughest things of Christian discipleship is negotiating the world with its temptations and its pulls. And so what Paul does, sorry, I've gone too far there, is um, with the knowledge group, is he says, you're correct. Your thinking is spot on but your application is useless. You see, knowing something is one thing. What we do with it is another thing. Let's have a look quickly at the conscience group. Paul calls them in verse 7. He says they are people with a weak conscience. What does he mean by this? Well, remember the church in Corinth. It's a new church. These are people who've not been Christians for loads of years. They're people who've probably come in from all walks of life into the church. Many of them may have been involved in the temple worship of these other gods. And some of them may have been heavily involved. That may have been their way of life. Verse 7. So Paul says, when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. They haven't got their minds around fully that these gods don't exist. So they're thinking, if they eat this food, they're still worshipping these gods that they used to worship. I don't know if you can put yourself in their shoes for a minute. You know, you used to go to the temple of Zeus, and you used to offer him meat. Now, you're eating the same meat, but you're thinking it doesn't matter. You see how difficult an issue that could have been for people? See why, for some people, their consciences would have been um, pricked by what was going on there. Many of us today here, for all kinds of reasons, choose not to go to certain places choose not to do certain things because we realize that our conscience doesn't think it's a good thing to do. That it runs the risk of derailing our discipleship. Far better to do that out of love for God, isn't it? Than risk, as we'll see in a minute, being destroyed by the things of the world. One writer puts it like this, and I really like this. When we're following Jesus, we should never be asking questions about, well, what can I get away with? But actually, what are my motives? What are my motives in the first place? So how does Paul then address the question here? How does he answer it? Simple. Love each other. Love each other. The answer is not rules or more knowledge, but it's love. See, the problem in Corinth was that the knowledge group was so taken up by their correct thinking that they were forgetting to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so a new law isn't the answer, but actually love one another. See where each other is struggling. Support one another. Support each other. On this Mother's Day, I told you we'd get there. We've been remembering earthly families, haven't we? You know, and the love that can exist in the family unit. We've been remembering that actually, you know, in, in God's economy, he creates relationships to support us. The church is meant to be that. We're meant to be family to one another. We're meant to support one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to help each other grow to become more like Jesus. Verse 10 and 11. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ has died is destroyed by your knowledge. If the knowledge group, if they who think that they know everything and they've got this one all worked out, if they think, well, I can go and sit there in the temple of Zeus eating my meat and other people come in who aren't so sure, see them there doing that thing, they may be led into the point of thinking, well, if that's okay for them, it's okay for me. And they may be destroyed by that because they, the men, they, they might go back to worshipping that from which they have been saved. If that happens, whose fault is it? Well, Paul says it's the knowledge group's fault. When you do that, you sin against them and you sin against Christ. The whole situation flips on its head. Those who think they are right are actually leading other people into sin. So as well as loving each other, we're called to support one another. Paul's answer If meat-eating is a problem, if this causes a situation in the church, if this causes people to be lost, who because of their conscience will be pulled back into their old life, what do we do? Well, don't send them on a conference about the rightness of or wrongness of eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Just don't eat meat. Cut it out. If that's going to cause division in the church, get rid of that thing that has the risk of leading people away from God. Thank you for bearing with me on the background. This is not our issue. So you're probably thinking, what on earth is he on about this morning? We do not have a temple to Zeus in the middle of Lynn. Well, not that I know about. You can point it out if it is there. But there are principles here that really do apply to us, that really do ring true. It's about our attitudes to one another and how much we love one another. Do we love each other enough to make sure that we are not inadvertently leading other people away from Jesus. Do we love each other enough? A few years ago, we had a friend who was an alcoholic. She'd been dry for about eight years. She had become a Christian during that time. She was living a life of freedom. How do you react in that situation? Do I react using my own freedom that says I'm free to do anything? Or do I think, actually, no. I've got to love her enough to make sure there is no temptation put in her way that could take that person back into their old life. Which is the most important thing? The exercising of my rights for freedom or the exercising of love to ensure that that person is walking that life of discipleship? 
We have a friend who, years ago, you'll tell why this is lots of years ago, um, before they became a follower of Jesus, was involved in all kinds of quite risky sexual practices. And it normally started off in nightclubs with encounters with, with people. What do you do? I'll tell you, you can tell this is a long time ago. I can't remember the last time I went anywhere near a nightclub or anything similar. Do you go to those kind of places again with them? Do you take them to the places again where actually the location of itself doesn't make you holy or unholy, but what goes in there can do? What goes on in that place can do? Do you put that person right back in the situation of risk? Or do you say, for love for my fellow brother and sister in Christ, I will not put them in that risk. I will keep them miles and miles away from that situation. For somebody with an issue of gambling that may have broken a family apart, do you go inviting them to the school fair where even low-level gambling may start to be a, a pull for them? Or again, do you try and support them and nurture them and love them and keep them in a way that keeps them close to Christ? You know, I think Paul would say to us, do we love each other enough? Do we love each other enough? Do we support each other enough? Do we think of each other first? Do we think even if we know best that actually if that's going to cause somebody else to sin, forget our knowledge, love the other person. Forget what we think, love the other person. So I want to leave us really with some questions this morning. And the first one is this. Now I'm guessing that the meat sacrifice to idols issue is not a live one. I'm hoping I'm right in that. If I'm not, do come and talk to me. But I wonder whether each of us have our own meat sacrifice to idols issues. Issues in life where perhaps we're, we're at risk of going backwards in our discipleship with Jesus. We're at risk of being pulled back into our old life or into ways that Jesus wouldn't want for us. If you have one of those issues this morning and you're, you're feeling really vulnerable, can I encourage you to share it with church family? You know, we're meant to be family together, aren't we? We're meant to love one another. We're not isolated as Christians. If you've got one of those issues, and we all have, I have, and I do share it with people, we all have those issues. Let's love one another. Let's support one another. Secondly, are there things that we do that risk destroying others? Are there things that we do that risk destroying others? Might be the obvious ones like we've talked about. Might be things like our attitudes, gossiping. It could be all kinds of things. But are there things that we do that risk destroying other people's faith in Jesus? I think the message from this passage is if there are, don't think about your knowledge and your freedom. Think about the other person and what the impact is on them. And then thirdly, do we love each other enough? Very basic question, but actually I think it's a very profound question. If the church in Corinth had loved each other enough, they would have been able to work this one out without having to get all hot under the collar about it, and without Paul having to address it for three chapters. Don't worry, we're not addressing it for the next three weeks. But do we love each other enough. 
is love our priority for one another. I'm just going to leave those on the screen for a minute. Perhaps think about your own issues to start with. And then just spend a bit of time thinking about whether there are things that you're doing at the moment in your life that are impacting other people. So if you could just ask the worship team to come up and perhaps start playing just quietly. And we'll just spend a minute or so just in in the stillness. We just chew over some of those questions. Let's just spend some time. Paul says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Father God, your call for us today is to first of all to love you. And out of loving you, out of being known that we are loved by you, to then love one another. Lord, forgive us those times when we have done exactly what the church in Corinth was doing. Forgive us for those times where we have perhaps even inadvertently led other disciples of Jesus to struggle, to stumble, or even to be destroyed. Lord, in our own life, if we have those own issues that risk doing that to us, help us to to be humble before you. Help us in humility to seek one another, to pray with one another. Lord, as a church, help us to be known as a church who loves one another so that we reflect you to the world around us. So Lord, would you purify us, purify our hearts, purify our attitudes, our desires, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen.